Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. It is time for Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. I always look forward to gathering with my friends and discussing what we uh, what we learn in God's Word and questions that get asked by you. So if you have a question, text it over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here as always, Bill. Never, Hi, Bill. Never know exactly who's all going to show up, but you guys are my faithful, so thank you so much for, for being here so faithfully. It's really, really nice. All right, I've got some great questions that are already coming in. How about this one to get things started? Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Can you please talk about the meaning of, and the government shall be upon his shoulder? What are we to take that to mean? And do you have some supporting verses that you would recommend? I'm looking your direction, Jeff Redorn. Get things started. Well, Isaiah is speaking of a future time, when the Christ, the future Messiah who is going to come, will have a full reign of all government on earth. Uh, if you're sitting here looking at the world today and wishing that uh, your government was righteous, uh, where most of them are, are not, uh, there is going to come a day when uh, Jesus, the righteous king, will return, as Revelation 19 describes, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and Jesus will be king over the whole earth for a thousand years, Revelation says. This is when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there is going to be a day when Christ will return to establish his kingdom on earth. And there's many, many passages in the Old Testament, for example, that describe that uh, Jesus will be king over the whole earth. One of the best ones is probably Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3 that says, people from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God, and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his path. for the Lord's teaching will go forth from Zion, his word will go out from Jerusalem. Zechariah 14 says, and the Lord will be king over the whole earth. There's literally dozens of passages that describe this future kingdom uh, with Christ as king. In fact, his disciples, the last question his disciples asked him in Acts chapter 1, right before he goes up to heaven, is, are you now going to restore the kingdom of, of Israel? Uh, so they even had an understanding in the first century that one day Jesus would come as king of kings and Lord of Lords. You know, it's an interesting concept, and you're right, Jeff. And there's, I was looking at the Hebrew, and the Hebrew word that we translate is government in Isaiah here. You can translate it that way, but I think a better translation and a more base one is the word dominion, you know, and the dominion shall be upon his shoulder. He is not an elected official like government people are. 
He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so it's not what government is he going to be over? Is he going to be over the American government, South American? Whatever? No, he is over all of them and all those who represent him on earth and all those that don't acknowledge him are still accountable to his dominion. And he will have the final word in everything in uh, one day that's coming soon. And so it's good to know that. And we're free, uh, even if we don't like our government, know that Jesus still is above the government himself. You know, that's a good point, because at the end of the thousand-year reign, there's actually going to be one more rebellion that is described in Revelation, uh, where they, where Satan is released for a short time, and and the world surrounds the city of Jerusalem and tries to take over the kingdom, and the and fire from above comes and destroys them all. Right, but the point is, is that there are, there are going to be people in the millennium who have Christ Himself as King, who won't submit to Him as Lord and Savior, yep. and not be saved. I, that just astounds me. Me too. Yeah. Thank you. I'm astounded too. Good. So you guys aren't alone. All right. We're feeling better. Well, this is the this is the kingdom that. Remember when the woman came to Jesus and said, "Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, put one of my sons on your left and one on the right." And and he basically says, "You don't know what you're asking for." Uh, and 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 but it's it's this idea that they understood because it's all over the Old Testament that one day the kingdom of Israel and Christ's presence will fill the whole earth. Well, I think too often we limit the understanding of what this means. You know, I'm a human being, so I have a tendency to only see so far out ahead. This word in Hebrew that talks about dominion, or we translate as government, is over the entire universe. I mean, he is the king over everything, and there's no need for somebody to sit on his right or his left because he doesn't need the right or left. He is the final author. Nicely done, gentlemen. Off to a good start. Here's another question just came in. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is concerned about head coverings. It seems like Old Testament law that should be irrelevant after the work on the cross. So how does a modern-day believer process this when clearly men are in churches every Sunday worshiping with hats on and clearly few women are covering their heads? I've got a great answer, but I'll let Jeff go first. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, I went first last time, so I think it's Tom's turn. Right, Tom. I can do this. I can do this. It's interesting because one of the things I try to teach in Bible study is, first, we always need to look at the context of the, the verse, what comes before, what comes after. He's writing the Corinthians, and this may be a particular problem that they had in that setting because I know in Corinth, among the Greeks, head coverings were a very big deal in that time. Now, the other thing that I've learned a long time ago is that everything in the Word of God is true. But we, we have a tendency to be careful with doctrine and say you have to do this unless there are two separate and clear passages that talk about the same thing. Because one passage can be easily misinterpreted out of our culture, out of our own prejudices. But when you have two, and especially if it's Paul saying it here and then Peter saying it over here or Luke saying it, it has a lot more power. I've been looking uh, in the past because I've been asked this question. This is where I find the reference to head covering. I don't find other distinctive passages talking about that. So my attitude has always been, women, if you want to cover your head in alliance with what the Lord says, I will support you. But I'm not going to make it a doctrine for the whole church or for the men because we don't live under law anymore. We live under the gospel. And in this case, 
uh, Paul was speaking to a particular people with a particular problem, and I think that's why we don't see it elsewhere in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Tom has brought up kind of the the core of this discussion of whether or not this is an absolute for you know the church in all ages, or is this something specifically cultural in, in the first century? My understanding is that if you were a woman in the first century in Corinth and you didn't have your head covered, it was a sign that you had loose morals in some way. So it was a it was a dishonor to you. I I really don't think that a a Christian woman today not having her head covered in church is dishonoring the Lord or, as Paul says, is being shameful because of her loose morality. I don't think it means the same thing that it does today that it did in the first century. So on, on this head covering thing, I lean towards the interpretation that this was a cultural thing and more uh, relevant for the day as opposed to all time. But remember, there's, a, there's, there's still a principle here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the the principle is is that it's it's God's design uh, for for the church for men for women and so on. I mean, I, I think that verse three talks about that at the start of all this that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. There's a certain design here, and I think that principle is what's really at issue here. Paul goes to Ephesians chapter 5 and talks about wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5.21 says, therefore submit to one another then out of reverence for Christ. Uh, I think this is uh, about honoring God in all that you do and his design for men, women, family, marriage, and so on. Remember, I I like what Paul says in Romans. He says, um, uh, now I forget what he says. <laughs> he talked. No, he says something about it's not the kingdom of God is not a matter of uh, of eating and drinking, uh, but of righteousness and holiness, or or something like that. And I think that it, everything's a heart thing today. Um, if 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 we're all supposed to have women having head coverings and men not, well, then we're really doing a disservice to the Lord. But uh, I have a feeling. Uh, that it's much more of a heart thing than an absolute in all ages. Mm-hmm. I agree. Verse 4 talks about the men. The men are not to have their head covered when they're they're praying or prophesying. And so, you know, you got it. Uh, I think it was much more cultural than we realize. And I know this, that now that I'm in Jesus Christ, even if I err on something like this, it's not a disaster at all. The Lord knows how to work with it. And it's interesting, over over 2,000 years, he hasn't pushed, you know, head covering or hats one way or the other through every generation. It just hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, a church picks it up, goes with it, but it's not a universal thing. You know, part of that question, Bill, if if, uh, we got about a minute left or so, we still have a little time left for this question. Mm, Sure. Was, are we kind of still under this Old Testament law? Um, as believers. And as Tom just said, look, we are in Christ. We stand forgiven. Uh, Paul clearly says a couple dozen times in the New Testament that we as New Testament believers are no longer under the law of God. In fact, in, in Romans 8, he says the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the law has been fulfilled. It's been completed. It's been consummated in Christ. He fulfilled the law, and now we are in Christ. And so God sees us as having met the righteous requirements of the law. So as Tom just explained, 
This is not about the rules of Christianity. We are in Christ, and we have access to the throne of God. And uh, so whatever you end up wearing to church, uh, flip-flops, sandals, uh, shorts, uh, or have a hat on your head or whatever, anybody who is in Christ can come before his throne with confidence. That's Good a, word. That's an interesting point. I'd be curious to ask listeners, are you comfortable with, let's say, even the praise band wearing the ripped jeans and the hats and are do you are you okay with that do you wish they were dressed differently um do you do you look at what you see on the platform and and wish things were a little bit better better looking hats off jeans not ripped just curious as a pastor no and here's why in the early stages of my ministry everybody dressed up but their hearts were far from the lord gotcha and now I welcome anybody. You want to come in shorts and a sweatshirt? If your heart's right with the Lord and you want to proclaim his name and minister, I'm all for it. Cool. All right. Questions, send them over. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We've got some great questions coming in, and we will take more of them, especially if you've got one. Send it over. We'll be right back with Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. Another full hour of Guy Talk. We'll be right back. He entered Jerusalem like a king on Palm Sunday. By Friday, he was dead and hanging on a cross. Discover what really happened when you join Faith Radio's Reading the Bible Together Holy Week study. Walk with Jesus to the cross. Carry him to the grave and rise again in victory. Get your free study guide and access to the podcast by signing up now at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show, Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk is what's happening this hour. And you know the drill. All you do is send over questions. We'll do our best to answer them. Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are my panel. So let's get going. We've got a whole bunch of questions that have come in. Good. Fast and furious. Let's start with the oldest one here. Uh, What does it mean that all creation is crying out for the return of Christ? Well, that's a good statement. Uh, Creation, it was perfect in the beginning. When the rebellion came, and, uh, you know, I, I always grew up hearing that Adam and Eve fell. I thought there was a big hole in the ground. No, they rebelled. Mm-hmm. They did their own thing. They wanted to be God. And the creation suffered as a result. And so the creation itself is not what it ought to be. And the the creation itself wants to be restored to what it was in paradise. So it'll, it'll eventually be back to that. The day's coming when that will happen. But Jesus is going to have to make it right. I agree. It's uh, Roman says that we know that all creation is groaning uh, at this time, and it's uh, it will be redeemed. All creation, God is going to make all things new one day, and uh, until then, we live in a fallen world. Uh, we live in a Genesis chapter three world because of the fall. Man has fallen. Uh, there's fallen angels mucking things up. There's demons mucking things up. We got man himself. Well, who is not living perfectly according to God's will, and we have creation that's been frustrated. Uh, but one day we know that he will set things all right. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen, is Babylon destroyed before 
or after the rapture? Well, you have to distinguish between uh, the literal Babylon or the mystery Babylon that is described in the book of Revelation. Literal Babylon was judged by God never to rise again, I believe Isaiah says that. And so I believe that mystery Babylon is different than literal Babylon. I think the original Babylon gives us a prophetic picture of what's going to happen to this mystery Babylon in the end times. But she rises to power, uh, I think, Scripture indicates, after the rapture of the church during the seven-year tribulation period, where the woman, this mystery Babylon, this harlot, uh, this woman who sits on many waters on the on the city of, with seven hills, uh, rises to power with the beast, the Antichrist. So the woman is seen riding the beast in the first half of the tribulation period, at which point she is judged and destroyed by the beast, by the Antichrist at the midpoint. So after, I would say. I have no argument with that. All right, let's move on then. Yep. All right, Tom, I'm looking your direction to get this one started. Why say Lord of Lords, plural, since there's only one Lord? Well, in Jesus' day, there were a lot of people called Lord, and that was a very common terminology among leaders. And Lord meant the person who has the ultimate authority. When the Bible says that, it calls him King of Kings. Now, we still have kings in the world today, but what it's saying is, whether you want to talk about kings of this world, you want to talk about lords of this world, you want to talk about presidents of this world, Jesus is the top one, no matter what. And so he's the final answer. I like that. All right. Here's a question. Uh, is there a description of the Holy Spirit in the Bible? Who do you picture when you pray to the Holy Spirit? Well, the only real picture we've ever had is the, the dove when Jesus was baptized. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't... You know, and we see a lot of symbols of the dove, but it's a symbol. It's not the picture itself. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a, a lot like God the Father. And we're not going to see, you know, the figure in that sense. But like Jesus said to Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I would, I would anticipate he would also, if we have another text, he would say, and when you've seen me, you've seen the Holy Spirit. But he told them, he said, unless I go away. The Holy Spirit won't come. So there was the power that came into people, not in a visible sense, like Jesus walking the earth, but in a reality sense to where it changes lives. And we've been seeing that now for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the kind of part of that question is who do we pray to or maybe which person of the Trinity do we pray to? I think the pattern that Jesus gave us is that we pray to the Father. Um, and then the rest of the New Testament in Jesus's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that some will often pray, Father, we pray this, uh, Jesus, we pray this, Holy Spirit, we pray this. Um, but remember, they're all three gods. So, uh, you know, we pray to our Heavenly Father who is in heaven, who has revealed himself to three persons. So some want to restrict Christians and saying we should only pray to the Father in heaven and not to the other. I often will use the word Lord or Christ or Jesus, you know, sure. and start my praise, prayers that way. Remember, they're all God. All right. Well done. Here's another question of repentance. This came up in his Bible study group. Does a born-again Christian need to repent of daily transgressions after he has received Jesus as his Savior, or is this a one-and-done thing? And if he should die before he confesses his transgressions, 
then will he be judged for his unconfessed sins? Yes or no? <laughs> Let's take this a little further. When we come to Jesus and surrender to him, his work on the cross covers all sin of all time. His blood covers us. So if you love Jesus, you are forgiven. Now, why do we repent after we've been saved? Why do we even do that? Well, we still do things that are not honoring of Jesus. And the goal after you know Jesus is to live out the rest of this life to reflect Jesus in your speech, in your thinking, in your behavior, so that the world will see Jesus literally living through you. And so it's not an issue of, hey, have I forgotten some sins I didn't know? That's not the issue at all. The issue is Jesus is taking care of it. We trust in him, and now everything I do is out of thankfulness, even repenting. I, I repent because I'm thankful, because I want to be like Jesus. And so it's not a matter of do I have sins I've got to get rid of before I die. No, you have to keep going back to Jesus every day. And so I encourage people in the church and everywhere else, every day, renew yourself to Jesus. Every day, call on his name. And if you do that, you have no worry about anything else. You know, the I, Scripture indicates that the moment you believe in Christ, you have been forgiven. You have received that forgiveness. First Corinthians 6 gives a long list of different sins that people commit and says that if you are still in your sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says to believers, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of God. So forgiveness, scripture indicates that forgiveness is a done deal. Just as Tom said, past, present, and future, it's taken care of. It's one and done. Now the call to repent or to turn continues even after we are a believer, not unto salvation, but turning from the world and to God. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed uh, by the renewal of your mind. Put off your old self and put on your new self. Um, there are many places in the New Testament that describe now that you are saved, you need to turn from the ways of the world to the ways of God. But you have been made holy. It's a done deal. You have been forgiven. It's a done deal. If we lost our salvation anytime we had another sin, uh, you know, marked on our ledger, I don't think any of us would make it, right? But thank exactly. goodness he's taken it all on the cross for us. What I try to get across to people is this. Once you come to Jesus and surrender, it's over and done. He's taking care of the whole thing. Everything you do from that point on is thankfulness. Everything. And that's why we still repent. That's why we still help one another. That's why we reach out to the lost, because we are thankful. You know, that is the key. It is not, did I confess everything? It is how thankful are you going to be? And in my mind, thankfulness drives the Christian for everything we do now. If you want to connect with Faith Radio, and I hope you do, and if you want to do it with social media, you can follow Faith Radio on Facebook and Instagram for scripture and quote graphics, and you'll get links to articles and cool giveaways and live stream event notifications. And you can search Faith Radio on Facebook and Instagram. So after a short break, we will be back with lots more guy talk or guys who talk. All you do is text the questions over. We'll do our best to try to answer them. The number 877-933-2484. Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are my 
Power Panel today. We'll be right back. Welcome to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are my power panel. Here's the way this hour works. You ask the questions, we do our very best to answer them. The number to text is 877-933-2484. Jeff, I'm looking at your direction. Why did Jesus descend into hell for three days? What did he do down there? Well, that's where everybody went more properly it's called Hades in Scripture. And according to Luke 16, there are two sides to Hades. There's the paradise side or the bosom of Abraham side or the comfort side. And there's the torment side. So that, well, Lazarus and the rich man is the story. And they go to the two different chambers that in between is a chasm and there's no going from one side to another. So being righteous Christ, when he died, would have descended into Hades, just as the Apostle Creed says. It says hell, but it really means Hades, uh, to the good side, the comfort side. It says in Scripture that he proclaimed uh, basically the gospel there. He's proclaimed that I am the Messiah. I've conquered sin and death, and, and then he sets the captives free. So everyone that would have been on that good side of Hades, the bosom of Abraham's side, is now in heaven. They needed to be held there because the Lamb of God had not yet paid for the sins of the world. Now that he had died and rose again, the, the Davids, the, the Zacharias, the Isaiahs, and so on, could now go up and be in heaven with Christ. And that today is where we go when we die. Uh, after the cross, if you are righteous, if you are a believer, when you die, you're immediately brought into the presence of the Lord, now in heaven above. I need to make a video on this. I, I had a film background. I love this kind of stuff, the visuals. If you look at it and you, if you take a piece of paper and you put a line from left to right, you put the cross the right there in the middle. When Here's the problem. Everything up until the cross had its own problems. There wasn't forgiveness based upon the law. It was still by faith, of course. That's what we read about in uh, Hebrews. And then afterward, but if you think of heaven above and hell below or death below— Jesus' cross, and when he said it is finished, it's like an exploding star. Which direction does a star explode? It explodes in every direction. So to the heavens, to the, the realm of the dead, to the past, to the present. In other words, what Jesus did covered everything in the universe from beginning to end as we know it. And the benefit is there for those who surrender to Jesus. Even the realm of the dead. Yeah, we've got a couple of references where he went to that realm of the dead or paradise, as Jeff was talking about, and, uh, you know, proclaimed to them. So his goal is to pronounce that what he did satisfies every requirement in the universe for forgiveness of sins and purpose. David, when he was lamenting the, the death of his child, and, and he says, 
that he's no longer mourning. And people say, why aren't you mourning anymore? And he says, well, there's nothing I can do now. My son has died, and plus I will see him again one day. Well, there's this idea that that David would see his child again one day, even though they're both about to die. That is the picture we get from Scripture, that there is an afterlife. You don't cease to exist when you physically die in this world, uh, but there's two, <laughs> there's two options. You either die in Christ or righteous as a believer in Christ Jesus, and you have one destiny, or you die uh, outside of Christ and have a much different destiny. But both survive death. In the end, the unrighteous will be thrown into the lake of fire. The righteous will live eternally. So think about, remember when David, and for Hades, remember when David said, Lord, don't abandon me in the grave. That's the Hebrew word Sheol, and it's it's this Hades place. It's the same place. And he's saying to God, God, don't leave me there. And, and God says, basically, I'm not going to leave you there. Don't worry. I have a plan. And the plan is Christ is going to come and die for the sins of the world so that you can enter into my presence for all of eternity. I saw a great poster the other day, beautiful little girl, must be like five or six. She's kind of shaking her finger at you as you look at it. And above it says, she's saying, uh, everyone will die and live eternally. Then down at the bottom, it says, location, location, location. <laughs> and that's really the issue. Where mm -hmm. are you going to spend eternity? You're going to spend it, but it's where you're going to be. Mm -hmm. Nice work, gentlemen. All right, Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. And the question is, who are the people God has prepared for dishonor in his wrath? Hmm. You know, Romans 9 is one of these chapters. It's highly debated. The key to understanding is as it starts, we understand that Paul is describing the nation of Israel. He talks about my brothers and the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law. This is talking about Israel. Then he moves into God's selection of Jacob over Esau. And that selection for God's purpose in election uh, was not unto salvation. Jacob was, was I'm sure, saved. Esau very well could have been saved. This is not a question of salvation, but election unto purpose. God chose Jacob as the father of Israel over Esau. Why? We don't know. He's sovereign. He gets to choose. But when he then goes on to say, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, the application to us today is that those who believe in Jesus and are saved are received the mercy of God. Those who don't believe don't receive the mercy of God. I think scripture is clear that God offers salvation to every single person, that mercy is available to whosoever believes. I agree. I think every Christian needs a bulletin board in their home, and I'm dead serious, and or a chalkboard. At the very top, you write, you know, we talk about this, you write the passage that says, you know, it is the Lord's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the highest statement in Scripture. When you run into these statements, that falls underneath that. And not that it isn't powerful and effective and we have to pay attention, but now we have to interpret it out of that top statement. The Lord is not arbitrary, that he's just going to send some to hell because he doesn't like him and save others because he does. What he's doing is saying, I have created a process, a methodology through God the Son, Jesus. Those that follow that path have eternity. Those that don't follow that path are stuck in what they work for, and they wind up, unfortunately, with God's wrath in the end. Because when you don't know Jesus, what else is there? 
And that's why, like when Hebrews, it says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The point is, if you think Satan is difficult, don't meet Jesus on the wrong side. Be mm. ready and right with him now. Those are your mm. wages. Yeah. All right. Did the disciples perform any miracles, healing as well as removing demons, before Jesus died? Well, they came back in the 72, and they said, Lord, even the demons obeyed us in your name. And they were stunned by that. And uh, he said, you'll see even greater things. So there was some of that that took place ahead of time. We just don't have a lot of detail about it. Mm -hmm. After Jesus rose from the dead, after the day of Pentecost, then we see more of that going on. And there are quite a few references in the New Testament of healing and the power of the Lord, even to the point where uh, Peter's shadow had effect on people for healing. Yeah, and even the resurrection of the dead, uh, I think of the story of Paul. He's preaching, and he's preaching for a long time, and some young kid falls asleep and falls and, and, and to his death. And it's like, Paul, you got to shorten up your message or something here. You got people falling asleep in the in the pews. Uh, but he, he raises him from the dead. So they even had the power, like Christ did with Lazarus, to raise people from the dead. Mm-hmm. All right, great, uh, great answers, gentlemen. Uh, when we go to heaven, will we see Jesus? Will we see God the Father? The Bible. The, go ahead, Jeff. I, okay. Well, there, we have a couple of verses where Paul says, "Absent from the body and present with the Lord," and and Paul elsewhere says that it will be better for me to depart and be with the Lord, or die and be with the Lord by far. But he says, "I press on to take." hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So uh, there's a couple passages where Paul clearly states that when we die, we will be with the Lord Mm -hmm. um, in heaven. Um, For God the Father, it doesn't indicate right away that we are able to see um, God the Father when we're in heaven. I, I tend to think that we will be able to, but we know that in the end we will be able to because I think one of the greatest promises of all of Scripture is Revelation 21, 3, where it says, and then when God makes a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, this is the eternal state that we will dwell in forever and ever and ever. And Revelation 21, 3 says, and God will dwell with his people. And so he will be there. He is the temple in the new Jerusalem. He gives that city his light, and we will dwell with him. We will tabernacle with God the Father forever and ever and ever. I'm not in disagreement with that. I think you're exactly right. I don't know how that's all going to work out. The one thing I do know from the New Testament is Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, so why do you ask, show us the Father? The Father is spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. Jesus, though, took on human form, and now he's returned to heaven. But I believe when I see Jesus on that day, He will be in a very human form, and I will be able to look him in the eye, and uh, he will talk to me. And, you know, I think, honestly, I will be talking to the Father and the Holy Spirit at the same time. But once I see Jesus, I don't think I need to see anything else. Hmm. All right. Another question, gentlemen. This morning, I was reading an online forum discussing salvation. Many comments agreed that salvation can be lost. This seems contradictory to the scriptures. Your thoughts on this? Thank you, and God bless. Well, there are two different points of view, you know, that once you're saved, you're saved no matter what. Okay, I'm not going to argue with that. I see that in Scripture. But I also see in Scripture, because I just finished teaching the book of Hebrews, it's pretty strict in Hebrews about enduring to the end. 
about not abandoning the Lord. How can you be restored to the Lord if once you knew him and then fell away? I'll be honest, I don't have a good answer, guys. I really don't. Uh, and I've tried not to make a doctrine out of it. What I try to teach people is it doesn't matter if you received Jesus 10 years ago. You better do it again today when you get up and walk with him all day long. Not that you're trying to gain salvation, but you're thankful for what he's given you. This was a question that when I first started seriously studying scripture, this issue kept coming up in my mind. It's, it's, I would read one person and they would say, well, of course you're secure in your salvation. We have true assurance of salvation. And then others would say, no, that's a, a, a doctrine straight out of the pit of hell, or, you know, it's a false teaching and, and so on and so forth. So as Tom described, this, this is debated within Christianity. Um, my own personal studies, I got to the point where I, I remember praying to God. It's like, Lord, this seems to me to be a very important issue because if I could lose my salvation, I needed to know, well, how, under what circumstances. And so you could avoid those circumstances and make sure you retain your salvation. And, and, and I prayed and prayed about this. I remember reading in Ephesians 1 a couple weeks after this. And I read this line, and it said this, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions. And I read that, and it's like, of course we have, we're secure in our salvation. It couldn't be any other way. And if you think about how John ends First John 5, he says, I write these things to those of you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. So I think we can know that we know that we know and have true assurance that, as Paul says, our salvation is kept in heaven for us, shielded by God's power until that day. Thank you, Jeff. We'll take a little break and return with plenty more guy talk. Questions, send them, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter... Thank you so much becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. All right, we're back with Guy Talk. Thank you for all your great questions. They're coming in fast and furious, and I'm afraid that we may not get to all of them. So, gentlemen, talk faster. We do that. We will. <laughs> All right. Was Thomas's doubting a salvation issue or a lack of faith, but still saved? Oh, I've never heard it expressed like that. Yeah, I haven't like either. That. I haven't. And we, my name's we Thomas. Know that, yeah, Thomas, in the in context of that story, he did not believe the other disciples uh, and the women that said, we've seen the Lord, he's risen, and he doubted their story. 
until he saw Christ himself, right? And then he says, Jesus says, stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. And he falls down and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, because you've seen me, you have now believed. And then he did a very interesting line after, blessed is the he who does not see, but believes. That's us. We have to believe based on the testimony of the disciples that they had written down in Scripture, uh, which Thomas didn't do. So it's a great example that, hey, we can believe that Scripture is reliable and true, and we believe their testimony when Thomas didn't. You know, Thomas is no exception to the apostles. The morning that Mary came back from the tomb and said she had seen the risen Lord, the apostles didn't believe her. They didn't believe her on that day until that evening they met the risen Lord Jesus. Thomas was made his statement, not because he was in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. He wasn't there that night, and he said, so I'm not going to believe until I see him, and Jesus shows up. And that shows the graciousness of the Lord and how he works. So they were nobody believed until they were literally confronted with the truth. All right, nicely done. All right, I want to address this question. We can... Be brief with it, because I know this is a probably a much longer answer that you guys would have to respond to, and this is another divided issue, but this listener has said, I've always been taught that hell is for unbelievers that lasts for eternity. But when unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire, are they not burned up and completely destroyed and annihilated? At that point, is it true that they no longer exist in eternity? Tom Parrish? There's no teaching in Scripture that talks about, um, you know, annihilation, where you're just totally gone. Um, what we have in Scripture, when it talks about the lake of fire, you have to think of it in terms of a metaphor. Not that it's not real, but how do you explain that to human beings about what that's like to be out of the Lord's presence? That's where I go back to John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternity is being out of the Lord's presence. And nobody's experienced that in this world because he's here for all of us, whether we believe in him or not. But that day uh, will be a horrible day. And I've talked to two people that tried to commit suicide or died and had a hell experience. And they both were very emphatic. I don't want to go back there. It's the worst place I've ever been. And it's horrible. And they said they felt like this was going to go on forever. I don't know. I just know be right with Jesus now. This is is actually a very fascinating kind of doctrinal issue. Um, the question, the core question is, is the lake of fire eternal um, in in duration or is it eternal in effect? So the traditional view is uh, in Revelation uh, 21 where it talks about the lake of fire and also in Matthew 25 where it says that the those on his left go off to eternal punishment. Is that punishment uh eternally in its duration, meaning that people are tormented forever and ever and ever? Or is it eternal in effect? Meaning, uh, like the death penalty in this world, um, when you arrest a criminal, capital murder, they're found guilty, and they are sent to the, you know, to be executed, they are executed, and, uh, and they die, and they're punishment could be described as eternal punishment, meaning it was eternal in effect. There's no coming back from it. And so that's the heart of it. Those who believe that it is eternal in effect are called generally, theologically, conditional immortality, which says that our immortality is actually dependent upon us believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving 
eternal life, something that we didn't possess before that. But but as Tom described, the traditional view of the church has that it's eternal in duration, and so um, that people are tormented forever and ever. But uh, but it is something that's debated within Christianity. In Mark 9, uh, 40, 48, it says this. Uh, Jesus says, talking about those, you know, if you have an eye that offends you, it's better to pluck it out and go to heaven than it is to go to hell. Then he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's about the only real explanation we have that gives us any duration, understanding it. And when it says not quenched, I think that means forever. And the worm does not die, I don't know. I think the the key is don't go there. (laughs) And, the, and the, the conditional immortality person would say, well, that's the worm doesn't die. That doesn't describe what happens to the person who's thrown in there. And by the way, the fire is the fire. That also doesn't describe what happens to the person who's thrown into the fire. The, and, and, and they will point out that, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah rises forever and ever. Uh, similarly, it says the smoke of their torment in the lake of fire rises forever and ever. It doesn't mean that Sodom and Gomorrah is being uh, continually bombarded with you know, fire and brimstone and sulfur coming down from the sky and so on. It means that we remember it. We remember that judgment forever and ever. It, it, this, is, this is like a 60-page, you know, doctrinal thesis uh, to study all of the different aspects of this, but it's a fascinating discussion for sure. And when you get it done, please send it to me. (laughs) By the way, I was looking here at the Greek on this, and I don't know why they always use the term worm or why they translate it, because worm in Greek means gnawing and anguish. It's not talking about the thing you put on a hook. It's a phraseology that was used back then for gnawing and anguish, and so Jesus used modern terminology but I think we get this wrong. We see this little worm inside of us. There's no worm inside of us, you know. No, it is us. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're, you're gnawing in your anguish of being out of my presence is forever. You don't want to go there. Mm. Interesting. The, oh, go ahead, Jeff. No, I was just going to say that oftentimes they'll bring it back to John 3.16, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In fact, the two words that are used most common in both actually the Old Testament and the New Testament for the condition of the lost in the lake of fire is these two words, perish and destroyed. Uh, and they actually mean perish and destroyed. Uh, so look, the look, the traditional view of the of eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire is definitely kind of the orthodox view of the church. Uh, There are some fascinating discussion points that the conditional immortality folks have uh, related to this issue. And let's never forget, my last name is spelled with an A and two R's, not like the parish in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Uh, But here, the, the main point is, and Tom actually mentioned this at the start of this, there's two destinies for people. Right, you better make sure you know what whatever that other the lost the broad gate that leads to destruction whatever that looks like you don't want to be on that road you want to be go through the narrow uh, gate and the the small gate and the narrow road that leads to everlasting life and that's only through Jesus Christ. Well, here's a question that connects to the one we were just talking about, and it's this: um, Do you think that people that are in hell, think about what they did wrong in their life and realize they missed the boat, so to speak. 
for Christianity. Well, the only thing that they would really be thinking about isn't what they did wrong, but that they didn't receive Christ. Yeah, so Tom mentioned this phrase, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase are, are actually part of many parables in the book of Matthew, which describe, I think, the lost in Hades, in that that torment side of Hades that we were actually talking about in the first half hour. And so there is conscious uh, torment in Hades. We see with Lazarus and the rich man, we actually have an, an account of somebody who went to Hades and, and says to Abraham, Father Abraham, well, at least send Lazarus back to my family to warn them of this place. So the idea that there's much reg- regret and much uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and much regret to, to those who are still on earth wishing they knew the truth and that they knew that this place was real is real. It's really there. And so we see that in Luke 16, actually. I had a woman come to me. She'd been married 50 years and told me she never loved her husband. <laughs> that was not fun to hear. That was painful. She said, I passed up my high school sweetheart because my parents didn't like him. And I have lived in anguish every day since then. It was the relationship that just about killed her and destroyed her life. And right here, Jesus is talking about a relationship. The gnawing and the anguish is not simply the fire in that. It is the fact that we are not in the presence of the Lord anymore, and Mm. we passed up that great opportunity. Mm. You know, I like hanging out with you guys, but it's time to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Send us home. I need to send you home. But thank you so much for another very stimulating hour of discussion. Amazing questions came in. I'm sorry if you didn't hear your question answered. Rosie, would you do your very best to collect those questions? I will. And we can have them available for next Guide Talk. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Peter Hill is going to join the program. Looking forward to meeting him. We're going to be talking about intellectual humility. I I can't wait for that one. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.